<laughs> so hey, everyone. Hi, everybody. It's good to see you. <laughs> Hi. It's good to see you all. Well, not to see you, yeah. but it's good to be in your ears again. Uh, it's been a minute. Uh, you know, through the through the wonders of that's a different podcast. It's been a minute. That's true. But through the wonders of <laughs> podcasting, uh, you may not have realized how long it's been since we've actually recorded a new episode. Um, I was uh, just listening to the last episode we released, which was the uh, the healing versus curing episode, and in it, I mentioned that it was Good Friday. So that was that was April, I think, was the last time we recorded a new episode, and we've just been releasing previously recorded ones and interviews. Um, so before we get started, I just wanted to give you a little update as to where we've been and uh, where we're going. So stuff's crazy. It's just nuts. My wife and I have uh, are in the process of planting a new church and selling our house. Yay. And I've been working eight to ten hours every day, both on the house and on the church. And so haven't had a whole lot of time. If you haven't listened to the Reimagining Faith with the Pastors Jackson podcast, you definitely should. That one also has been on like a two-week hiatus because I haven't had time to do it. But the last episode was with Rachel, and it was an awesome episode. It was wonderful. Um, yeah, and and go support them on Patreon. That's another mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, you could do, do it. that too if you really were feeling generous. Do it. Um, so Adam's yeah. wife had a baby, and so he kind of went off into dadland. So he's kind of disappeared. Yeah, four children oh, does yeah. that. Yeah, um, Kendra was finishing up her first year as a uh, as a professor while also still finishing your dissertation and adjusting to life and things just got so overwhelming over there. And, um, Ian, you've got COVID symptoms for the past month or so and, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with potentially long COVID symptoms and problems. And Rachel, your life is, I've seen your calendar. You'd never have time for, for living anyway. <laughs> I don't have any excuse other than I'm clergy and that that's the only excuse. But, you know, I think the other reason for me is that, um, you know, the the American society has just felt like it's crumbling, yeah. um, especially these last couple of months and having to deal with that in addition to just um, the fluctuations of what it means to be clergy, the beautiful ability to do so many weddings and funerals just then takes up that that time. Mm. So um, plus, you can't podcast by yourself. <laughs> you need right. That's right, and it's a little Pulls hard. Off. And now it's like the high holy day season, mm. um, right? For so for the Jew and the pew, the high holy days like start with Rosh Hashanah, which this year is September twenty fifth. But for the clergy on the bema, high holy days start. Um, no later than July fourth, because um, it takes it takes you know it takes it it takes a minute to create nine services and sermons and all that wonderful stuff that we just love and the intensity there. So I'm sort of saying that as a we know where we've been, mm-hmm. but we're also kind of looking at the next couple of months and going well we're not exactly sure where we're going to be yet either, um, right because. Zach's still planting his church, and then we've got those three professor-type people that are going to be starting their new semesters, and then it's High Holies. So we just love our listeners, so thank you for bearing with us. And, and we want to make sure my brain is still working. We will be here. That's true. That's Ian right. And I, That's Ian right. and I are working the long on COVID. a whole bunch of, yeah, 
we're working on a whole bunch of interviews that we're, we're going to set up. It's, it's kind of easier to plan an interview because we don't have to create the content. And we've got mm -hmm. a whole crop of Sinai and Synapse uh, fellows. Uh, a few of them we've already talked with, only released one episode so far. So there will be plenty of new podcast episodes uh, coming. But the real reason... And then, of course, why... if you have requests, please keep letting us know. Yeah. Have yeah. us. Yes. So this this episode is a mini episode, and it actually is a request. Um, this was originally came from uh, Ruth Shaver, who on Twitter retweeted uh, tweeted at us. At, what's the nomenclature for Twitter? I'm I'm no an idea. old man. I'm too old. Uh, she added <laughs> us. She tweeted it. She twittered we're in our direction. <laughs> Um, about the James Webb Space Telescope and the new pictures that came out and all of that. And she oh said, you guys need to get on this. So we have decided to record a miniature episode in which we are going to share some of the things that are absolutely blowing our minds about the first five pictures released to the public from the James Webb Space Telescope, which, by the way has been in development in earnest in its current form for 17 years. It was originally started planning back in 1993 when they had to go up and fix Hubble's uh, lens. They started planning this telescope as an augmentation a, a, to augment the work of, of Hubble. Um, it, it, it ends up costing $10 billion, which the original uh the original budget was like three billion, so it is kind of took a while. Five billion was the original. Okay, mm -hmm. well, these numbers have changed so many times, and they have changed hands, and it has been almost canceled by NASA, by Congress, so many times. It is nothing short of a miracle that this thing made it all the way to launch to making it out one million miles away from Earth into its own orbit. And now it is open and it is working and it is doing science. And so I don't think I've ever been more excited about a thing in space before than the James Webb. And can I add something, Zach, real quick? Yes. Before we delve into some of these pictures, what's been really interesting over the last several days for me is one, to see the enthusiasm from the astronomy community and the science community in general. Um, but it reminds, you know, kept, uh, bringing back our conversation uh, with Jennifer Wiseman that we released back in December when she kind of touched on, you know, and as you just said, Zach, when Hubble's mirror was broken, they were able to go up and fix it. Um, and, you know, the complexities around sending the James Webb Space Telescope up there, the design of it, sending it, that recognizing that if it got out there and something was wrong, there was nothing we could do about it. I mean, it, it, no one can go fix this thing. Right. And so I think what we're looking at is just so amazing what they've been able to do and pinpoint exactly where it needs to be. Um, and then also, too, it's been really fun over the last few days for me to see like the current lead scientists on this team talk about, you know, the potential of this thing lasting like 30 years and how excited they are, especially ones who've been working from the beginning. Um, to see them talk about how excited they are for the new, next crop, the next generation of astronomers who are going to ask questions that they never even dreamed of. Um, yeah. And all of these amazing discoveries that they can't even think about right now that that will be coming. Uh, it's just, yeah. it gives me goosebumps. I'm, I'm so excited about this thing. Me too. I think, 
Um, sort of, again, before we delve into a little bit more specifically about the Webb telescope, sort of where we're coming from, and there's two comments that I want to sort of respond to. The first is this idea that when something went wrong with Hubble, they could go up and fix it. And there's this, I don't know if I've talked about this book before, um, but a book called Handprints on mm. Hubble, an astronaut story of invention um, by Catherine Sullivan. And the idea behind Hubble that made it so unique um, was that it was designed to be worked on in space. Like, that was part of the original idea. It wasn't like, oh, no, we have to go up there because something happened. It was like, no, the plan is for it to have space maintenance. And so it had to have completely different technology um, in order for it to be worked on in space. So that was just one thing that I wanted to say, and the book is fantastic. The other piece um, is that, for me, this this moment, this web telescope building, designing, launching, and especially the launching, and now with the reveal of the data in the form of pictures, feels like our generations and our moments of walking on the moon. Mm-hmm. This this feels like it's something that's bringing us together. It's something that's feeling like we are able to find something in common that moves past our individual differences, our societal differences, our global differences at some point. And it just says, look up. <laughs> Look at how amazingly huge you are because you can do this and how amazingly small you are because look what we're surrounded by and we didn't even know it. And so when I look at this, that's that's sort of my, in the background for me before delving into like actually the pictures and the science and all that jazz, but just that coming from that first place of awe. Mm. Have we started the... Um the petition yet to rename the James Webb Space Telescope because James Webb was, uh, you know, a NASA bureaucrat to the uh, Jennifer Wiseman Space Wiseman. Telescope. We need to. Because she's the senior project work. scientist for the Hubble and she's wonderful and cool scientist. And you don't well, even have to change you know, the any initials of the acronyms. wouldn't change. That's so, right. Right? That's right. So, JWS. Well, if you haven't done that, done. I, I need to make an account on change.org, I guess. I, okay. Because I know how <laughs> those things make a huge difference. Absolutely. <laughs> we can call it. We can call Absolutely. it. Absolutely. The JWS. Yeah. Yeah. Every time you hear the uh, JWST, just think the Jennifer Wiseman Space Telescope. <laughs> <laughs> so, what can I say how disappointed I was with the uh, the initial press conference. <laughs> I don't know. Did you yeah. all watch this one the night before when when Biden was like, we're going to reveal one a Biden. day early. And I was so excited. And it was mm-hmm. an hour late. And so I've got it up on my phone and it's just doing this like, you know, elevator music because I'm waiting for this thing to start. And then they come up and they do, you know, they, they've got a pat themselves on the back and they've got to thank people and we got to say how great America is. And then then they get to this reveal and they show this incredible deep field image in the background. 
And we got to watch all of these people sitting at desks while this amazing image is just in the background, so small. It's not even full screen. And I just want to look at it, but it's in the background and it's so far away. And they're just saying how cool it is, but nobody, there's no scientist telling us what is actually on that image. And I was so sad. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> but then the next day, NASA released all of the images and they gave a little more description about what was in them. And then I was happy. So it's just a rough night. But the next day was incredible. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so uh, the thing that has just been filling me with such wonder and awe and amazement is this, that first image, um, Mm -hmm. what we're calling Webb's deep field Mm -hmm. image. Um, so far, everything that Webb has pointed at has been something that Hubble has already looked at, um, which is a part of the point, is that we want to see deeper into the places where we've already seen some. The Webb is meant to uh, supplement the work of Hubble because yeah, Hubble works mostly in the visible spectrum with a little bit in the infrared, and the Webb works almost entirely in the infrared. And right. so... So let's just let's just clarify a little bit of that. I think we need just a touch, like an iota of science yeah. there. What do we mean when we say that? How much how much difference is it? And just to throw some numbers on there, the visible spectrum is approximately ten to the negative sixth, and the infrared is ten to the negative fifth. Right. So if you're just sort of picturing how long are these, and it's really the question of how long is the wave from this point. To the next point, right? Like you can, an analogy that we need to be able to see because it's really hard to sort of picture light waves because we've never actually, most of us have never seen them. Imagine an ocean wave, right? What is the distance between the first wave and the second wave, right? As they're all coming into the shore, how far apart are those? And the further apart they are, um, then you get into a different spectrum, and so, and the further apart they are, that's more like x-rays. And then the closer they are together, that's when we get into the visible and then the infrared. And then it goes on um, goes on further as they get really, really close together. So infrared means that they're closer together. X-rays means they're really far apart. And um, visible is what we see is approximately 10 to the negative six in terms of the wavelengths. So just wanted to sort of add that piece that these differences while they're markedly different in the sense of what we can and what we can't see, um, we're really only talking about a factor of 10 in the wavelengths, that we're not looking at these massively different wavelengths. It's not like we're going from X-ray to ultraviolet or something like that. And so I just wanted to add that piece. So light wiggles and... You're all color is. That's pretty much what Rachel just said. Yeah. All all your vision is, all the rainbow is, is just light that wiggles differently. Some wiggles fast, some wiggles slow. Slow wiggles are red and uh, fast wiggles are violet. And so like when it's a little bit slower wiggles, so now we're in like slow dance territory, um, then we can't see that because we're not butterflies. But... I think we said in a previous episode we were talking about this that the reason why it's we can see farther and deeper into this is because as light moves through an expanding universe the light itself 
expands. And so it goes from being kind of fast wiggles to slower wiggles as it goes. So you think of like um, a, a siren on an ambulance when it's coming at you and it's high and then it goes low right there. And it gets lower as it goes away because the, the wiggles are getting uh, stretched out as it goes further away. And so we can see a little bit more wigglies in, in the web than we could before. And so when we are looking at this picture, um, what is really blowing my mind are the little curvy bits, the the mm -hmm. galaxies that Agreed. kind of look like they're like wrong, right? Like like they're they're little squiggles, like there's a mistake, um, because those are the oldest galaxies that we have ever seen in the history of humanity. Here's and here's what's so incredible about this. So we can't see them normally because they have stretched out for so long. Some of these are 13.1 billion years old, this light that has come away and it has stretched so much. But what happens sometimes is that there are these, these really big galaxy clusters and have so much gravity that they bend light that hits them around them and focus it down like a magnifying glass. And so what the web is doing is it's looking at the galaxy clusters, which are acting like a second telescope. So it's mm -hmm. like we built the most powerful telescope ever that humans have ever built. And we pointed it at nature's most powerful telescopes that, that nature has ever built so that we can look at the galaxies behind them that are unimaginably far away, both in space and in time. So uh, we're kind of piggybacking on nature's telescopes, which is why they look all bendy. Because, you know, if you've ever played with a magnifying glass and moved it around and you've seen the image inside kind of <laughs> get distorted and get all wonka-doodle and whatnot, that's because it's not perfectly focused because we can't move that galaxy cluster back and forth so that we can perfectly <laughs> focus on the thing behind it. So we just kind of have to take what we get. Um, there's actually a really cool thing. And now... What you're going to have to do because you're listening is you're going to have to either pause this and pull up a picture or you're going to have to make a note to yourself to look at this later. But if you look at the deep field image and you look smack dab in the middle and there's like this fuzzy white cluster and then you look just slightly to the right, you'll see kind of like a backwards C or like a... Um, uh, a closed parenthesis that's kind of a reddish-orange-ish. It looks like one kind of backward C, but really what you're seeing is the same galaxy mirrored twice backwards. Um, that is one galaxy that you're huh. seeing twice mirrored because of the way that light has been gravitationally lensed around it and potentially lensed around multiple galaxies in different ways. And so kind of we get to see it from two different perspectives, which, whoa, also awesome. Um, <laughs> and the more you look into this picture, the more of the little things that you notice, the more the little things that you see, there's, there's uh, just such incredible detail in these faraway little smudges that I have just been spending 
just so long zooming in on every little thing and imagining what is mm. in those things. I mean, and they're 13 billion years old, so it's totally different now in whatever now means than when the light here uh, left it. Um, the other thing about these pictures, the the smudges and rings, those are galaxies. The things like the giant stereotypical starry looking things with the spikes coming out of them, those are stars. And those are in our Milky Way. Those are in the way of the pictures that we want to take. Um, <laughs> but I learned, stars. right? But I learned recently why they look like that. Why they have those spiky things. Does anybody know? I don't remember. I've been told before, but I can't remember why. I actually don't know. Yeah, it's bec it's because of the the supports in the telescope itself. So you can tell how many arms are holding the mirror by how many oh. uh, spikes Seriously? come off of that. Yeah, because it's such high uh, high light coming in that it gets weirdly refracted in ways because it's not coming evenly onto the mirror because of the supports in the way of the mirror. So you look at all the, you look at Hubble and you look at, at Webb and their stars look different because they have a different amount of supports around the mirror. Huh. Isn't that so, cool? There, so there's eight. Yeah. So when we have, when we have drawn stars, like as kids and we've made them with like the pointy sides, that's because we've only really ever looked at them with telescopes that have supports around mm -hmm. the, the mirrors. And so we have seen them with arms when they don't actually have arms. And Hubble had four, right? I did not remember that. That's really cool. Isn't that fun? Yeah. I'm into it. <laughs> the more, you know, totally into it. <laughs> Well, and I feel like, you know... So you've been I, spending... You go ahead. Go ahead. Well, so the thing that I... I uh, Is just that, you know, we... One of my favorite episodes we ever did a long time ago was about awe. But, I mean, like this to me, and this is the reason why I brought up at the beginning, the reactions of the experts, you know, and the people who've been dedicating their lives to this project and the, the up-and-coming generation and the things that you know, our children will see. It just, it gives me even more awe about all of this because it is so much fun for me in any area of learning and anything, right? When you see the reaction of experts to their craft, to what they've done and how excited they get and how much awe they have and wonder. Um, and it's, it's, it's just been so fascinating the last several days to see that. Um, and it gives me more awe and wonder because it's like, I can look at it and see how beautiful this is. I've got a rudimentary understanding of astronomy, so I can understand what this means and that, you know, for the most part. But then to see uh, these astrophysicists over the past few days um, talking about some of these, uh, and uh, which one was it really? The, the one that I thought was really amazing was the, um, which, oh, which one was it? The Cosmic Cliffs? Whatever that one is. Mm, yes. Um, yeah, the Carina Nebula. And um, oh, that this astrophysicist, I can't remember her name right now, but she was someone I was like, man, we got to get her on the show because she was just so fascinating <laughs> to watch. But when she talked about, started pointing all these different things out, and as Zach was just explaining with the deep field, 
you see all the different stars, um, but then all these different areas in there. And, and she was talking about because of Hubble, you know, we could see these things and we kind of understood these things, but now we're able to see even more and then started pointing to different things. Like we have no idea what this is uh, and I can't <laughs> wait to figure it out. And it was just so much fun to just see the basics of science come into play, you know, and how it's all about curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and just trying to figure things out. And so this is stuff I'm going to be using in my class in the fall. Um, and those types of videos to show that, you know, we have teachers who believe that, oh, well, science, you know, it's too hard for me. And I, I may not be able to teach it as elementary school teacher because I'm too worried or something like that. And that, you know, and I'm not a scientist and I always try to emphasize that, are they curious? Because if you are, you're doing science. Um, and to show these professional scientists just as curious as them. Uh, will be and how they don't know admitting you know that astrophysicist mm. from NASA again was saying pointing to different parts like we don't know what this is I can't wait to figure it out and so I mean it's it's just really fun to see and that particular image is unbelievable like all the little <sighs> things are hidden in that one image the Carina Nebula yeah mm-hmm. um, and that is just like an a, itty bitty portion that- of a smaller part of a much bigger nebula like you zoom mm-hmm. out from that and That's you're right. like, oh my goodness, I'm looking at like a single skin cell on a hand <coughs> is what I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the things that um, from a, a scientific standpoint that I am in awe of, again, not just the, the pictures, but the science behind this. Um, and I, I just have to use sort of a, a, a little anecdote from my own life. Um I've been trying to create a, a new website and I needed some pictures. And so I said, hey, friends, could you send me a picture? And so they sent it to me and it was, you know, it was a good picture. Like it was one of those high resolution pictures that we all take with our, our you know, when you set high res on your, your phone cameras. And it took me forever to download it because my internet was super slow. And so when I'm looking at these pictures... Huh. <laughs> that are coming from web. The thing that just was shocking to me is, as as you said, Zach, this is literally a million miles away at the mm-hmm. second Lagrange place. Right? A million miles away. And the size of this data is five times the size of any data that's coming from Hubble. And it's approximately 137 megabytes. <laughs> That's right, because it's 32 megabytes. It's uh, 24 megapixels from Hubble, and a hundred, and it's you know significantly larger than that. 137 megabytes for Web, um, 3,000 times further away, mm. and that data has to travel through space. And then when it gets to us, and by us, I don't mean us. <laughs> I mean the experts. <laughs> um, they then have to understand what those ones and zeros are saying and translate it into a mm-hmm. picture. And to me, that ability to do science in those ways, it's not like backyard astronomy where you can just take your your telescope, look up into the sky and see a picture that this is bits of data that somehow have to travel through space. And you need an expert on the other side to understand that. 
And to me, that allows for, well, I just don't understand that, or I'm not astronomy, I don't get physics. No, you can be a math person. You can be a computer science person. We need all of those people. We need all of these different skills and techniques in order to make this happen. And then we need the artist rendition mm. to actually make it come to life. And that's another piece of the science when I look at these you know, I, I'm so community focused, and I think that really comes through when I when I when I review sort of these things. It's that what is the science actually doing? The science is telling us that all of our skill sets are valuable. Mm. That we all that whatever it is that we're coming at this with, um, we needed that. Like all of the engineers, all of the clean room technicians, all like et cetera, et cetera. Um, that to me is part of this this miracle that is web that's giving us this yeah the red there's um, like over a thousand people on the team yeah it's like it's just and and somebody has to like schedule all of them mm. and oh. feed all of them and clean up after all oh. of them and you know i mean it's not and everyone has a role and how beautiful that is that we come together the other thing that i just want to say sort of turning you know turning the conversation the um the deep fields, which we've talked about previously, All right? We talked about that um, when they first said, "Hey, what's out there in this part of space that looks empty? Let's let's look at that for a week or ten days." And that was with Hubble, and it turns out there was something mm. there. <laughs> and now they said, "Well, let's take a look at that spot again and see what differences we can see." I don't think that it's better or worse. I think it's just different. Mm -hmm. Um, when you look at something with a different lens, when you look at something with a different wavelength, um, when you look at something with different tools, it's not better. It's just where we're at now, which is different than where we were at then. Because um, I remember when Hubble first gave its pictures, it was like, wow, nothing's ever been like this. And it hadn't. And now we're like, Web, nothing's ever been like this. And it hasn't. Um, <laughs> but when I look at that, and this has been posted everywhere, so I'm not saying anything new. It's just one of the things that, that occurred to me is that this is the size of a grain of sand held at arm's yeah. length in the sky. And I'm going to throw a little bit of religion in here because that's kind of one of the things that we do <laughs> on this podcast. And using that analogy that we take a grain of sand and hold it up to the sky really makes me think about Genesis and the promise, um, the promises that are in there. And one of the promises says, I will make you as numerous as the grains of sand. And then the other promise is, I will make you as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Mm -hmm. And here we have both. <laughs> and we can just look at that and go, wow, there's so much that we just don't know how lucky are yeah. we how how lucky are we that that's that's what we get to go explore that that astronaut said i don't know right. <laughs> right that expert said i don't i don't know let's go let's go find out and that's that i think is what we get to do so whether or not this is like whether or not you're a physicist and you just like know this or you're just like this is really cool it's now the background on my desktop computer all of those are really valid and wonderful ways of understanding what's in front of us. Yeah. Can I geek out real quick um, about that? That reminds me of. Yes. Do. Yes. And I'll say another thing. 
We said short episode, and then you're like asking matter. us to talk about this amazing thing. So, listeners, we don't really know when we're recording this how long this is going to be, but you will because you can you can see it after Zach works his magic. This is the um, best. But like this is just fun, so I hope you're able to like geek out and nerd out with us. <laughs> well, just thinking about all of the people over time, progressively working together to learn more to. Mm-hmm. dig deeper into these things that one of the five pictures released was of Stefan's quintet, oh, which yes. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. was first discovered by um, Edouard Stefan in 1877 at the Marseille uh, Observatory. It is five galaxies in a uh, compact galaxy group that are all just kind of chilling pretty close to each other. It's like a cul-de-sac. Yeah, it... <laughs> They've got their own HOA. That's actually a really good description. (laughs) A a galaxy (laughs) cul-de-sac, yeah. And uh, actually, if you remember from It's a Wonderful Life, uh, when the angels are talking to each other about um, uh, George, whatever his name is, um, that there are, that's the picture. It's those five galaxies. And they're like blinking back to each other, pretending that they're angels. And we've taken pictures of them since then with different telescopes and all that. But that was 150 one, years. Right, 150 years. And the web looked at it and we're able to see two of the galaxies currently colliding with each other. Mm-hmm. And we can see the <laughs> gravity of these that are currently pulling gases towards each other. And in some of the rings, that gravity between the four of them that are colliding is creating these new star clusters throughout. And then using a different spectrum within the infrared, they were able to see the black hole in the middle of the top galaxy that we didn't really know was there, but suspected was there. But now we know. And as we get get this like inside look into what happens when galaxies collide, what happens when galaxies interact, what happens when new stars are created in real time as it's happening. Because unlike the other the other ones that are, you know, at, from the beginning of time, this one is a measly 290 million light years away. So mm. <laughs> which means what we're essentially <laughs> seeing is what happened 290 million years ago is what we're looking at. When we say it's that many light years away, we're saying it's like a, a time machine. We're looking back in time. This is uh, well. Let's just let's just let's just frame that in what we might already know with our own time, mm-hmm. right? Because 290 minutes, like I don't know what that means. What that means is before dinosaurs, mm-hmm. like not not since before humans, not since before the extinction of dinosaurs, before dinosaurs even showed up, sharks were here. We still, we had <laughs> I think that then. was the Permian um, period, right? Am I, roughly, yeah. <laughs> roughly. Um, so that's what we're talking about. Imagine looking that far back on Earth, and that's what these galaxies are showing us. That There aren't even dinosaurs No, but there is the dimetrodon. Well, because that's not a dinosaur. No, but it was... <laughs> It's the one that everyone thinks is a dinosaur. Right, but it's not. It's just not. Just like a pterodactyl is not a dinosaur. But that's for a different episode. It is. Um, but it... And, and, I, and I say that... I'm sorry, No, Ian, go, ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. You can interrupt no, my No, we recorded that episode okay. already. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We have done that. Um, imagine how much our planet has changed since then. Mm-hmm. Now imagine what those galaxies could possibly look mm-hmm. like were they to exist in this time? 
right? That we could be looking at those galaxies, which of course have planets, and what's happening with those planets? <laughs> Maybe there is primordial ooze on those planets that we can now see, and who knows what's going to happen. Mm. Um, when that light reaches us. So that that's another thing that I like to look at when it's so close. Wait, 13 billion, I don't fully understand 13 billion. Not right. like I fully understand 300 million, but a lot easier than 13 billion. <laughs> Did you all know that not only can web focus 13 billion years away, but it can also focus on things in our own solar system? Mm-hmm. Isn't that incredible? I saw that they're going to be looking at the, the, great, the big red spot. They're going to do that. So yeah. I don't know if you guys yeah. knew that or not, but they're going to do that to understand Jupiter's, what's it called again? Great red spot. And Venus is, and they're going to look at Venus, I think. Probably. Yeah. I can't remember, but I'm certain okay, they will. Okay, so again, yeah, exactly. <laughs> again, think about this in terms of what we can do. You need, if you're a photographer and you want to take a picture of the inside of a flower, you need a different lens than if you're taking a picture from the ground looking up at um, Yosemite's half yeah. dome. Right? You, need, you need a different lens because those, those require such different understandings. And this one telescope has the ability to do both. Again, I'm yeah. sure my analogy falls completely apart. No, but I'm just getting into photography and I have a different I, lens for birds and bugs. <laughs> right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can't use the same for both. Right? You can't, and yet this this telescope has the ability to look at the very close Jupiter, and you know, astronomically speaking, it's like right here. Well, if if um, uh, Sony made a camera that cost ten billion dollars, I'm sure that we could figure that out here too. But <laughs> what? Well, go ahead. No, I'm I'm looking for something because I I think it was the description of the Carina Nebula that I saw in some of the things I was reading earlier, that the description talked about this relatively close or nearby. I think they're referring to it as nearby mm. <laughs> nebula. And then you look under and it was like 7,500 7, light years away. And, right. and so at really first close. I was like, nearby? I mean, I wouldn't call that nearby. But then when you look at like the deep field one and space. other things come out and the vastness of space, you're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. All right, seven seven five hundred light years away. That's not too far, <laughs> but still, it's you, a. You didn't even say million. You didn't even say million. Right, like that's backyard. Yeah, that's in that's in the house. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to find the, the even, thing I saw with backyard. it, but anyway, it was really funny just to see that description. Okay, so what other science? No, what other science or how about wasp emotions? Ninety six B. That was pretty I neat. I was just looking at that one. Right? Not a picture like yep. the other ones. Um, it's right. uh, 1,120 light years away. So it's basically our neighbor, right? It's about half the size of Jupiter going around a star somewhere. And Webb just looked at it and was like, mm, you have water. That's right. Right? Water. <laughs> water in your atmosphere. So basically, we've talked about this before, how amazing this spectroscopy is, that it's able to take mm. that it's able to take in light coming from so like when the planet goes in front of its star, it's able to look at the difference in the wavelengths, right, which is like how much the light is jiggly, 
coming through the uh, the atmosphere compared to what it is going through space. And depending on how jiggly it is at different levels of jiggles, then they can tell that what kind of elements are in it. And so they're just like, they just looked at it and they're like, man, it's water and a bunch of other stuff. And so we're able to see like chemical compositions of the atmospheres of different planets. And one of the really, one of the things that we're definitely looking for are biological markers in that. And so things like uh, phosphine, which is what we saw in, um, in, in Venus's clouds, that was something that on Earth is only created by bacteria. Now, it could be created naturally in other places, but if it's in the clouds, that means it was created recently. Or you, if there's chlorophyll, if they have plants that are that are using chlorophyll to do photosynthesis, we'll be able to see that in in the atmosphere. And so we are looking for things like chlorophyll and phosphine and other sorts of, of, of chemicals and amino acids and whatnot in the atmosphere to see, does life exist here? Potentially, obviously, we can't, there's not going to be like a sign that says, hey, we're here, we're doing life stuff. But um, it's going to be <laughs> We're looking for places where potentially then a future satellite that is designed to look for this sort of thing can point at that and be like, you know, hey, look for the we're here sign. Although I don't think it's going I don't think it's going to be on um, on this particular planet. Wasp 96B, yeah. given that the temperatures are about a thousand degrees Fahrenheit. It's just too um, close. That might be, you know, it's pretty close to the sun. It's actually closer to its sun or it's a star. Mm-hmm. Um, Three and a half days takes to uh, orbit. So. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 pretty close. So I don't know if we're going to be looking at that. But what I, again, from sort of a science standpoint, reframing what this looks like. It took, Webb took this picture when the planet crossed in front of its star. Mm-hmm. And Just... I look at that, and and again, the analogy that comes to my mind is, so you're sitting on the ground, and a friend, or not even friend, a stranger, and it's a sunny day, right? So you're sitting on the ground, uh, you're, you're tanning after you have your suntan lotion on, and you're just absorbing all of that wonderful vitamin D, and a person comes in and stands in front of... Stands in front of the sun, creating a shadow, and you're looking at its eye color. And then it goes, and then this person moves on. And that's what we just saw. And it only happened, and it only took six hours to look at that. And it only happened because it passed in front of its star. And I just... I love that. I love that when when we constantly think about space and we're thinking about stars and galaxies and nebulae and the birth of stars and all that stuff. It's like, oh, also, when something gets in the way of that, let's take a look. Mm. Let's not ignore that. Let's to, right. let's use all of our senses, all of our our spectrometry and our all of our tools to actually see what we're seeing. Well, as we talk about that exoplanet, it reminded me because I remember reading about this a long time ago, but that the first confirmed discovery or detection of an exoplanet actually occurred 30 years ago. It's 1992, mm. right? And so when you think ago. about the fact that up until 1992, it was speculation that they existed, but we had no confirmed evidence that they existed. And that from the first time 
where there was confirmation that an exoplanet existed. And so those of you who are not aware, an exoplanet is any of the planets that are outside of our immediate solar system. Um, all right, so they don't orbit our sun. Um, and so 30 years ago, they detected the first one, and now look what it is we were able to do. Which some of the, the I mean, what we've been discussing, Hubble's been able to do as well, but to this degree and this um level of detection is just mind-boggling, right? And that's just right. unbelievable, right. like what we've been able to accomplish. It's in 30 years. Right. It's right. truly, truly remarkable. And and again, when we, I think there's a lot of this sort of comparison back and forth between what, what pictures Hubble is showing and what pictures Webb is going to be able to show. And we're going to be doing that for a little while. One of those other, and I think that's fine. Again, they're different tools. And they were created with different technologies, so I don't think it's a real fair comparison. Um, one of the things that I look at, though, is in this increase, is how much faster we're able to get this information. So it was only six hours to get the information of an entire atmosphere from a planet 11, like, really far away. And that deep field one was the difference between 23 days and 12 hours. We're talking 150th the time it takes, which means that we're going to be able to do a lot more science. You know, again, <laughs> that's the royal we. We're going to be able to <laughs> just sort of understand what's out there so much faster than we're going to be able to keep up with, frankly. And there's something really amazing and powerful in that. That when someone, when a scientist says, hey, could you could you just angle Webb over there? I just need a few hours. They'll be like, sure, not a problem. As opposed to, hey, Hubble, I need you to aim that into nothingness <laughs> for two weeks. And it's like, ah, uh, that's, that's, like, that's a rough request. And now imagine if we aimed Webb for two weeks somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mind is blown. Right. Well, and it also comes down to, obviously, where the location of it is, of Webb versus Hubble, right? I mean, Hubble was orbiting us, and so since it's orbiting Earth, it's hard. You have to take it at just the right time, right? So because it's since it's Mm -hmm. constantly going around our planet, you know, you can't just aim it in one spot in the sky and Mm -hmm. expect to collect everything you need. It has to, each time it comes back around, you do the picture again or collect the data each time, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas this particular telescope, it's orbiting with us around the sun. And so I I think that obviously has a lot to do with, yeah, yeah, it's considered stationary in comparison to us, right? So it's much easier for them to collect all that data, which was part of the point of sending it out there. Um, Mm -hmm. And and also get away from a lot of the uh, uh, interference from our planet that that uh, Hubble experiences. Um, well, also, you know, also light pollution. I mean, just it's it sounds so you know it sounds such an odd thing, but if you're in a city, it's hard to see the stars, and you go out into the middle of nowhere. Now you can see stars. Well, Hubble is only 350 miles away from Earth and pretty close to the sun in that way, and now Webb is a million miles further away. It's like. Instead of going to your local city park, it's like, no, let's go camping in the woods somewhere. You're going to have less light pollution. And it sounds really weird to say light pollution directly from the sun. <laughs> um, but putting it out there, you know, putting putting the telescope far, far away to where we can't do repairs right. really, en- really enables uh, the ability to see better. Yeah. 
from interference, which is why, you know, um, earthly telescopes are on top of mountains. Yep. Yeah. Well, we've not really, I know we've been talking a lot longer than we planned. We've not really talked about (laughs) the Southern Ring Nebula (laughs) and how, you know, we've got Uh, the, um, the Carina Nebula is showing us, you know, the birth and it's an active star forming region is the Carina Nebula. But what's really neat about the other one, the Southern Ring Nebula, is that it's showing where a star is dying, Yeah. right? It's the last bit of a dying star, um, which is still just as fascinating to me as the other one. I mean, for different reasons, but it's just so amazing to look at that image and be like, okay, that's what it looks like at the end of this star's life. And then they actually released two pictures of that. The yep. second picture is from a, <laughs> right, the a different only. spectrum with the infrared, um, which, again, different kind of jiggle. And we're able to show through <laughs> the clouds that it's a binary star. So, yeah, yeah there's two of them in there. So that's even cooler. And if you're because you were just talking, Ian, that that's the death of the star. Mm -hmm. But with that second star, they're saying that it's the earlier stage of the evolution. Mm. Okay. One's dying and the other one's being born. Which is just even cooler. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) right. Like, I, I have a really hard, I shouldn't say that. It's challenging sometimes for me to really um, mesh direct science with direct religion <laughs> on Earth. Hmm? Right? Like, it just, I'm like, no, that's just nature. Right? This is why trees do what they do. This is why oceans do what they do. But this, oh my gosh. It's just this birth death cycle of stars, this. This, for me, is where the divine shows up. Yes. And I know we don't necessarily talk our personal theologies that often, but to me, this is where there really is the true collision of science and religion. Yeah, if there are any uh, Christian preachers out there listening to this episode, the Christian religion has a lot of words uh, baked in to our theology about the transformative power of death into new life. It's kind mm-hmm. of the basis of the whole religion. And we've got a lot of good songs and a lot of good theology around it. And this is an excellent sermon illustration. If you ever want to show an incredible picture of the death and rebirth of something, because the next star that's born will be a different kind of star than the one that was before it it will be creating different kinds of elements. And I don't know what's in that cloud of gas, if there's heavier elements in that that might create planets. But what we're looking at, you know, could be the primordial beginnings of something just like what we call home. Mm -hmm. This is how things are made through death and through rebirth. And if I remember, like, uh, this particular star that's dying in this one, you know, I read somewhere that it's comparable to our sun. And I yeah. do remember learning years ago that when our sun is at the end of its life cycle, that when it expands like this as a red giant, it it will get, you know, it will consume Earth, right? Mm-hmm. Because of the size of it will increase so much that it will be larger. 
I don't know if it would go up, if it would go up to Mars, the orbit of Mars, but at least we'll get through Earth. Um, and what I just find fascinating, you know, what made a curiosity I have, I guess, Zach, based on what you said, is what elements are in the the cloud that's coming out from this, you know, this explosion, the end of the star, is that that could be, you know, creating new things, but at the same time, it's destroying, right? It's it is itself dying. Right yeah. and ending its life, but it's also destroying things within its immediate vicinity. You know, so mm. if there were planets around that thing, they're gone um, because they were destroyed by that um, process. And yet, more can be created later on. Which, just to me, is again, it just gives me more awe towards all. I mean, it's just so fascinating. The first time you look at these images, they did a great job releasing these images. Um, and I love the they fact knew what the, their they marketing person oh, knew yeah. what they were doing. <laughs> and then you could compare them to Hubble to show the distinction here. Uh-huh. And it was fun to read different opinion pieces of everyone saying the roughly two decades and $10 billion were worth it with these first five images, you know, and just that becoming the consensus um, and that we move on past that part. Yes, it costs a lot more than we thought it would. It took a lot longer than they thought it would. But look at what we're getting just at the very beginning. You know what I'm looking forward to? It's something that uh, Jennifer Wiseman teased when she was on last time, that well, one of the things that they're going to do is they're going to make Webb and Hubble work in tandem on some things so that we'll not only yeah. get like, hey, here's this nebula 2.0 but they'll take the visible spectrum that hubble's able to see and the infrared spectrum that webb is able to see and they will point it at the same thing and they will get a hugely complicated image filled with more detail than you could possibly imagine across this spectrum and the more satellites we get that can do that sort of a thing i I think like the nancy roman satellite that's coming out in a couple of years that's going to be able to Mm -hmm. do a much wider view um there's a couple others that are that are working in this way if we can throw in x-rays and you know all, all these kinds of things that when they work together on one image i think in the next couple of years there are going to be some Images that come out of NASA that are going to just fundamentally shift uh, just who we are as people. I, yeah. It turns out that collaboration is the way to go. Is that what I hear? Imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> collaboration between NASA and the ESA and the CSA and um, all of. No, no, I was thinking also like just the Humanity? collaboration of telescopes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, that and too. The collaboration of individuals. No, no, exactly. Taking that as a amazing what we can do if Hubble and Webb and Roman all work together. Well, what if we all worked together? What if we took telescopes from every part of the Earth and we focused them in on different places and we used the entire Earth to form one mega telescope so that we could take pictures of black holes? Because we did that and it's incredible. We have a picture of the black hole in the middle of our galaxy because we turned the entire Earth into one giant telescope. And I think that's amazing. Because, because we can work together. That's right. Any um, final thoughts okay. here at the end of our miniature episode that's about an hour long? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm going to pause for two seconds. So feel free to edit this this piece out. There's a beautiful poem that kind of ends a little sad, but it talks about awe and joy and brings in like astronauts. Hmm. Can I read it to you and then you can decide if we want to keep it? Sure. 
I, I mean, I'm fine it's with like that. it's it, if you if you have okay. a poem and you think it's appropriate, then you you are batting a thousand when it comes to that sort of thing. So just go for it. <laughs> well, again, I'm giving the sort of like I think this is a good one, but there's a poem by Yehuda Amichai. Uh, who did not title his poem, so I am sorry I can't give you a title, but if um, if we look it up by the beginning of the words that I keep going back to when I look at these images and how powerful they are and how small I am and how those experts at Ian, you were talking about how they frame what they've been seeing. And so I want to read you this poem. The Precision of Pain and the blurriness of joy. I'm thinking how precise people are when they describe their pain at a doctor's office. Even those who haven't learned to read or write are precise. This one's a throbbing pain. This one's a wrenching pain. This one gnaws and that one burns. This is a sharp pain and that one dull. Right here, precisely here, yes. Joy blurs everything. I've heard people say after a night of love, it was great, I was in seventh heaven. Even the spaceman who floated in outer space, tethered to a spaceship, could only say, great, wonderful, I have no words. The blurriness of joy and the precision of pain. I want to describe with a sharp pain's precision Happiness and blurry joy. I learned to speak among the pains. <laughs> <laughs>